my son Andrew and I were uh, driving to a Cubs game, and we hit the Kennedy right at rush hour. And if you know the cash box there by O'Hare, uh, like about eight or ten lanes come down to three. And so it was like the, the, the traffic was so thick that it was barely moving. It was, and and then, then this made it worse because about every quarter mile, you'd lose another lane and people would have to force in. Usually if it's fast traffic, people zoom around and find their lane. But this was like a parking lot that was moving all at once, like, like on a parade. And literally, we got to a point where there's about six inches between my car and the car on either side of me as we're all trying to figure out how to, how to do this. And right about then, this car filled with teenagers, laughing, joking, having a good time, who had been behind me coming through the cash box, zoomed around and tried at the last second to squeeze into this little disappearing half lane. And there's no way they could possibly fit there, and they knew it, but they also knew if we force it, everybody else is going to have to stop or cream their car. Well, when I saw that, man, something inside me went, no way, I will die before you get in one car length in front of me, buddy. So we're playing chicken. We're like this, and the six inches is dropping to four, and I'm looking over like, I ain't budging, you know? And we go this, well, okay, so finally he did get ahead. Uh, but only because it was that or kill my car. But man, did I simmer on that going down to Kennedy. It took me like 15, 20 minutes to get that out of my system because I had to yield the right away. Well, what happened to me that day on the expressway is what can also happen in your workplace, in an apartment, in a relative's house, in your kitchen. Maybe right now you're battling with a teenager. Who's going to yield the right away? All right, or your boss is full of himself, or your roommate is not doing her full share, or your sister-in-law is pushing your buttons. Who's going to yield the right away? One summer it was really hot, and I had just finished mowing the lawn, which is the perfect time to put on like weed and feed. And uh, so I wanted to spray that, except I realized, oh shoot, I don't have any. So I came in the house and I told Karen, "Hey, I'm going to the store." And uh, and she said, "But the kids and I are waiting for you to go to the pool with us." I said, "Well, that can wait." And she said, "Honey." We promised the kids we'd all go, and I should have known right then. We got into a big fight. And later I thought, wait, she wanted you to go to the pool and relax, and you wanted to stay and work in the heat. You are seriously dumb. But you see, the argument really wasn't about logic. It was really about what I wanted and what she wanted, and I knew what I wanted and what she wanted could wait. So often, friends, when somebody's making us mad, underneath whatever the conversation or the argument or the issue really seems to be, oftentimes what's really going on is it's about power. It's not about car lanes. It's about power. It's not about weed and feed. It's about power. How do you and I deal with the power differences, the power confusions, the power frustrations in our relationships with one another? 
This has always been tough. But could it be that it has become one of the most pressing questions for those of us living in America today? Because today, everything is seen through the lens of power. As George Packer wrote in The Atlantic, for many people today, quote, all relations are power relations. Everything is political, and claims of reason and truth are just social constructs that maintain those in power. And so the leading answer for dealing with power right now is, well, you, you flip the oppressors, and you, you give power to the marginalized, which sounds actually fantastic. But have we noticed that in the execution of this new approach to power, what so often happens is that those who were doing the oppressing are now getting the oppressor. It's, you hear things like, of course, you wouldn't understand, or I'm offended, that shuts down the conversation. Or certain people, you're, you have no right to speak at all, right? And so I, I know that a lot of good is trying to be worked out in this conversation, so please don't take me wrong. But what I'm noticing, and see if this matches what you're seeing, is that we are acutely sensitive about power more than ever. But we are also more inflamed, more angry, and more divided than ever. Is there a solution? Is there any way that you and I, in our daily relations, can be utterly clear and honest about the reality of power and power differences? But like defusing a bomb, we can take away the power, uh, the, the capacity of those power dynamics to harm us. Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, where Paul has been teaching Christians how to have unity, how to enjoy this unity that God has made possible in Christ, he takes this right head on. And he teaches them and us how to move beyond power struggles. Fair warning, though. The Bible's answer to power differences includes one of the most disliked, one of the most difficult, and one of the most divisive words in the entire Bible, the word submit. Nobody likes submit. Nobody likes that word. Many Christians who otherwise try to live by the Bible just wish this word would go away and they want to do like Thomas Jefferson and pull out the scissors and just trim out a few words there. Non-Christians, of course, see that and they just go, this is the height of oppression. This is what I'm talking about when I say religion is evil or dangerous or a problem or whatever, whatever. And there's a very good reason why pretty much everybody who approaches the word is somewhat wary and somewhat fearful and somewhat angry. Maybe you were, got a little skittish as you looked in the bulletin and was like, oh, shoot, we've reached that point in Ephesians. Here it comes. Okay. Well, here's really why that is, because many Christians have misread, misunderstood, and mistaught what submission means. And so what they've actually done is made the power differences worse and made them much more damaging and even abusive. When, when my wife was doing family counseling, a woman came to her years ago and, and her husband was beating her. But she didn't want to leave. She, she refused. And so Karen said to her one time, what would it take for you to get to safety and she, because of this woman's understanding of this verse wives submit to your husbands she said I'll stay as long as I have to even if it means he kills me and I want to say this lovingly that woman was wrong she was horribly wrong she had been mistaught 
and it was endangering her life. Now, thankfully, she finally saw that. But we got our work cut out for us, friends, because tonight what, I, uh, what I'm hoping we can do is try to gain a real understanding, a better understanding of the Bible's teaching on submission. What is Paul actually doing here? We all know that mispracticed, it can lead to oppression, but here, here's what I actually hope we can get to tonight, if God being our helper, that rightly practiced, I believe this vision for submission that Paul teaches here is our only hope for dealing with the constant power struggles that we have in our relationships. See if you agree. All right, you ready? Let's start where Paul starts here, Ephesians uh, chapter 5 and verse 21. He says, submit to one another, he's writing to the whole church here, out of reverence for Christ. So notice that Paul writes this to every Christian in the room, every person in the church. So whatever the word submit means that Paul is saying here is something that Paul thinks every Christian can do and every Christian should do. So what what does it actually mean? Well, then Paul gives guidance to six different types of people in the church. Wives, husbands, children's fathers, slaves, masters. And in each case, those people are living in a relationship where they either have far more power or far less power in a way that will shock us when I try to explain to you just how great the power differentials were. It's actually because of the teaching of Christianity that's largely ameliorated those. But he starts with the husbands and wives. Now, in Paul's day, as you may well know, a wife usually had no legal rights. None. And I mean, what I mean by that is that her husband could do whatever he wanted to do in legal matters without her consent. No matter how much it affected her, it was his to sign. But she had to get her, her husband's permission before she could, say, buy anything, sell property, make a will, anything like that. Not to mention, husbands had the support of the pagan philosophy which said women are really just damaged and inferior forms of males. They were like on the production line and there was a flaw and so now they're in the seconds box. And therefore, quote, as soon as wives begin to be your equals, they've become your superiors. Plutarch, a Greek philosopher who taught shortly after Paul wrote this to the Ephesians, told the wife, Your role is to worship your husband's gods, share his emotions rather than having your own, and never speak in public. So you can see what Plutarch's way of dealing with the power differences here is to actually make them even greater and to make the person with less power totally lose themselves. That's his solution. That is not what Paul's calling for. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But do you see, he's actually giving the wife dignity. He's saying, you have power too. You have moral choice too. You can decide how you want to respond to this situation you're in. And you have your own relationship with Christ. So, would you be willing, out of reverence for Christ, out of your relationship with Jesus, to choose to use what power you do have responsibly? Then he talks to the husbands in verse 25. 
and he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is poetic, but can we remember that means died, was spit on, tortured, and died. So many, even early fathers, commenting on these verses say, what Paul asked the husband to do is, is really, uh, if it could be compared, harder. He's saying, husbands, I want you to love your wives with a love so sacrificial, you will die for her in a thousand small ways every day. So, so like, stop your whining and die. Now, do you see what Paul's doing? He's not de- denying the existing power structures. He's defanging them. Next, he goes on to kids. And there's a huge imbalance of power there. As one scholar explains, the power of fathers was almost unlimited in the Greco-Roman world. They determined whether a newborn baby had the right to live or die. And many baby girls in particular were abandoned to die. Fathers could and did sell their children, especially girls, into slavery. They could punish them as harshly as they wished, work them hard, or even put them to death. And Paul says to children in Ephesians 6, obey your parents, honor your father and mother. He does not go and rewrite the Ten Commandments because households don't work well when the children run them. I don't know if you've noticed. Okay. But, Look what he immediately does to the fathers. Do not exasperate your children, meaning don't do all those things that you have the social power to do. I'm saying no. Don't make them angry by the way you treat them is essentially what he's saying. Aristotle taught fathers, you should rule over your kids like a monarch. And Paul's saying, no, don't exasperate them. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Finally, Paul talks to slaves and masters where the difference in power is, of course, huge. Aristotle taught that since slaves don't have moral capacity or enough mental understanding, their owner should rule over them like a tyrant. And many in the Greco-Roman world took him at his word. In his letter to Philemon, Paul cuts the legs out from under all that. We don't have time for that tonight, but here knowing that open rebellion will only lead to greater suffering for the slaves, what he tells slaves is, obey your masters. But masters don't get off easy because they have to submit this way. Treat your slaves in the same way, meaning with the same respect I've just asked them to give you. And do not threaten them. Now, what happens to the relationship if suddenly that person who used to threaten you is not threatening you? The person who used to be harsh is now treating you with kindness. Well, all of these six types of people are now together in church, and Paul says to every one of them, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's see if I can try to summarize this, what I think he's saying. He's saying in life, friends, when you and I are in a place of less authority and power, which in his day included wives, children, and slaves, Don't do what you're tempted to do. What are we always tempted to do when we're in a position of less power? Resent, resist it, push against it, complain about it, be passive-aggressive, whatever. 
And he's saying, out of reverence for Christ, respect and honor the other person. But when you and I are in a place of more power, which in his day included husbands, parents, masters, don't, don't run over the other person. Don't use them. Don't make it your point to show them how much power you really have. Don't drive them nuts. You know what your power has been given to you for? To benefit them. If they're not benefiting, you're not doing it right. You're there to serve them. You're there to sacrifice for them. That's the only reason you have that power in this relationship. Now do you see what submission means? Submission means I voluntarily limit, only because I'm a Christian, out of reverence for Christ, what I would naturally otherwise want to do in this relationship in order to benefit you. That is radical. That is new. This is nothing like they were used to thinking. Now, if you would, picture in your mind a relationship where you are feeling the power struggle with somebody. Maybe it's because you have less, maybe because it's you, you have more, maybe because it's ambiguous and you think you should have more. Okay, so what I, do, you, do you have that in mind now? Okay. Now, what would it look like if, out of reverence for Christ, you took whatever power you do have, whether it's less or more, and you decide to use that to serve them in some way, some way that would benefit them? Can you picture some kind of specific action that that would take? All right. This is what submission means. And I don't know if we can fully appreciate what a breakthrough in human relationships this teaching is. It is, unlike so many other teachings, it is utterly, brutally honest about the fact of power. Some have more, some have less. But submission specifically does not give the person with more power free reign to use it. It restrains that person from using their power against anybody with less power. They can only use their power for the benefit of that person. Now, think how much submission helped those early Christians who had less power. As Jill Briscoe writes, in Paul's day, the Christian wife was about to be offered her first opportunity to have her husband ask her what she felt about selling their 13-year-old daughter into slavery. She'd never been asked before. And submission also benefits the person with more power, although not in the way we usually might think. Richard Foster explains that submission leads to liberty, the liberty to be able to let go of the terrible weight and burden of always needing to get my own way. If you refuse the, the opportunity, invitation of Paul into submission and you have more power, you are not going to like, the other people around you will not like the person you're going to become. And I don't think you will either. All right. Now, if submission is as fantastic as I've just said, why has it so often become in the churches a text of terror? And I hope you'll give me a few extra minutes than I normally take for a sermon because I got to address this, I think. I'll tell you. Because people love to put words into Paul's mouth. And nowhere do they do that more than right here, and nowhere more than the husbands and wives passage. 
Paul says simply, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, right next to asking the husband and be willing to die for her. But that's not enough for some Christians, so they put words like this in Paul's mouth. Husbands, make all the important decisions for the relationship, and wives, go along with that. Heard that? Or husbands, if something cannot be agreed upon, you have the tiebreaker vote. Wives, live with that. Or husbands, go out to earn the daily bread, and wives, stay home to bake it. Or husbands, lead regular devotional times, and wives, if he doesn't, tell him to step up and be the spiritual head of the house. It's gotten so ridiculous out there. I'm waiting for the person to say, Paul teaches that husbands should be the only ones to hold the TV remote, and wives, you can use it when he's not. Can we just take a look at the text of Ephesians right here, scan it up and down, and see that Paul doesn't say any of those things? Nothing like that. Scholar Claire Powell points out Paul never specifies any cultural action or practical application from this passage. In fact, despite what many people misthink, Paul never tells wives to obey. He tells children. doesn't tell wives. So let's bring this home. If Paul tells us this beautiful way of diffusing the power bomb by practicing submission, but he doesn't give us a lot of specific actions, then how do you and I live more fully into this? Well, I'm going to offer, just as your pastor and somebody who cares about you, three words that I hope will be helpful. They're my way of trying to help you enter into what I think is this neglected, mysterious, yet astonishingly beautiful uh, art of submission. All right, word number one. Here you go. Personal. Personal. Here's what I mean by that. Submission is a doctrine I apply to myself. Hello. How many times? Paul's not saying, husbands, tell your wives to submit. But how many Christians have gone home from church and gotten into that conversation? He doesn't say to fathers, force your kids to obey. Instead, he says, don't exasperate them. Yes, I do want them to be honoring of you as a parent. That's right and proper. Do you see, though, that what Paul's doing is he's speaking to each person and saying, here's what I want you to do. He's not speaking to that person and then saying, you force them. You tell them. You get them in line. There's none of that. You know what I've noticed about submission? When I focus on what I need to work on, I got more than enough to work on. All right, if personal is the first word, the second word is spiritual. Unless you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, why would we ever submit to another human being? It makes zero sense. In in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that word submit there is not actually a command. The command is back in verse 18, where he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's lots of outflows of that being filled with the Spirit including submitting. Paul seems to think if you are filled with the Spirit of God and you hit a situation where there is a power, frustration, or differential, that you, by the power of the Spirit, will choose to submit. You will yield the right of way. Now, it doesn't mean leaders can't be strong and all that, so please don't misunderstand me. But do you see that submission, there's just no way you and I can enter this reality apart from the Spirit of God. It is spiritual. 
And finally, and I'll finish with this, submission is countercultural. Submission has always cut against the grain. Back in Paul's day, submission challenged a culture that gave huge power to husbands, fathers, and masters. Well, today we have a very different culture, do we not? We have a culture where power in marriage and family and work is utterly murky and contested. You never know, walking into any particular relationship, who has more power, right? So in one way, I guess that's been better. In another way, it's made things far more difficult in relationships. But here's the thing. Today, it's just as countercultural because he's telling the person with more power, use your power for the benefit of the other person. You're there to sacrifice for them. That teaching was crazy and countercultural back then, and it's really crazy and countercultural today. Early in our marriage, um, Karen and I uh, invited my folks out to come, out to visit, which they did happily. And we sat down and had our first dinner there around the kitchen table. And after dinner, I got up and just started clearing dishes off the table. And I didn't think anything of it. And my dad looked at me and said out loud enough for Karen and everyone else to hear, boy, you are a henpeck, which did not feel good. But I know why he did that. Because he quickly saw, oh, Whatever that is, which was submission, that challenges power. And I don't like that. You know what? Submission is not the answer that anybody likes. It's not the answer we asked for. It's not the answer we wanted. But it is the only answer to the constant frustration and anger we have in our relationships. And there is no other way. 